Welcome to the How Institute for Societies podcast, How Conversations, where we talk with courageous and authentic leaders about how we can build and nurture a culture of moral leadership throughout society. What does it mean to be a moral leader today? Who has moral authority in our society? What should we expect of our leaders during a crisis? And what are the moral leadership frameworks our leaders are using to navigate through these challenging times? These are just some of the nuanced questions our hosts cover in their discussions with CEOs, military generals, educators, philanthropists, and other leaders about the importance of moral and ethical decision-making. And now, here's the Howe Institute for Society Senior Fellow and Co-host, Dana Bourne. Hello. On this installment of the How Conversations podcast, I talked with former astronaut Ellen Ochoa. Ellen's a real trailblazer. She became the first Hispanic woman to go to space and the first Hispanic and second woman to serve as the director of the NASA's Johnson Space Center. All in, Ellen has spent more than a thousand hours in space. It was a great joy talking with Ellen about her journey to become an astronaut how she led her team through unimaginable tragedy and her thoughts on the future of Earth and space travel. I hope you enjoy this conversation as much as I did. It is just an absolute pleasure to have you on with us today. Ellen, welcome. Thank you so much, Dana. How is it that you got started on this trailblazing and innovative journey? Well, you know, in some ways, it just seems um, a little bit like a random walk. I, I had no idea that's wh where I was headed. I hardly took any science in high school, just biology. And uh, when I started college at the local university, San Diego State, I was thinking maybe music, maybe business, um, really didn't have a very good idea. Fortunately, I had taken a lot of math in high school, and I continued to take it in college. And, you know, kind of started to notice um, as I was finishing up the calculus series that, you know, everybody was in there in general because they were taking some kind of engineering or science and this was part of that course. So I actually, I went to talk to a couple different professors. One was in the electrical engineering department. He clearly was not at all interested in having me in the department. Um, he said, well, you know, we had a woman come through here once uh, but it's a, it's a really difficult course of study, and I don't know that you'd really be interested in it, which was kind of ironic since I had set up the appointment with him to find out more <laughs> about it. Um, you know, but luckily, I got a very different reception when I went and talked to a physics professor who seemed excited that I was interested in physics, um, told me about some careers, different ways that you could go if you studied physics, which was hugely important because I didn't have any idea, really. And it's pretty hard to think about, you know, studying something if you can't really picture uh, what your future might be. Then he did ask about my math background. And when I told him, he was like, well, that's fantastic. You already know the language of physics. And so if you started into studying it, you know, you'd really get to concentrate on the concepts, whereas most people will be trying to learn the concepts and the language simultaneously. And I think you do really well. So, you know, I, I tried physics the next semester and end, ended up majoring in it. Well, there is a quote, I think it's a sticker for NASA that says failure is not an option. And there must have been just a amazing pressure on you to not fail. How did you cope with that? 
Well, you know, you know, all throughout school where I was often one of the only women in the class, um, certainly only Hispanic women, you know, I just tried to take things one step at a time. But I think part of it also is sort of kind of redefining failure. Uh, you know, I put in my application to NASA and a couple years later, they did uh, a selection and I got to interview, but I wasn't selected. So sometimes people ask, well, you know, how did you cope with that failure? And I, I, I kind of have this response, which is, you know, I didn't really see it as a failure. I mean, obviously I didn't get selected. I was really disappointed because of how much I wanted to do it. But, you know, I knew the odds were low and it didn't make me feel like for some reason the qualities that I brought were, were not valued. It's just there were a lot of really good candidates and I had the chance to um, go to Johnson Space Center for the first time, to meet other astronauts, to find out about the job, to get some ideas of what might make me a better candidate in the future. So I think those are, those are the things that, you know, I tried to bring forward in every job of, you know, what, what can I learn, even if I don't do as well as I want? How do I take advantage of the resources that are available and, and you know, just work hard? Well, you have a message that is translated from K through 12 to CEOs and uh, world leaders. I'm wondering if you would try to summarize, what do you think some of the most key skills are for leaders at all levels to elevate and inspire young talent? It's hard to always distill this, but I, I do think about we had a kind of a poster and a message that we had at Johnson Space Center for everybody that worked there, government employees and contractors. And it was just called JSC, Johnson Space Center, Expected Behaviors. And, and it really, it had five things on it. Be trustworthy, be respectful, be accountable, be open-minded, and be a key player. And that was something that we wanted every single person that worked there to, to demonstrate um, every single day. And it didn't matter if you were a new employee or if you were a, a senior leader there, those were the behaviors that were important and that we really wanted people to demonstrate. So I think that that's something that I would just pass on to young people. Well, you spent a lot of time in, in NASA and the, the culture there is, is quite a culture of innovation. And how would you distill like one leadership skill that you really honed in your time at NASA? One of the things is there's so many, again, so many things that take your time and attention. Um, you know, how do you prioritize you know, and what is your purpose? And I kind of point to some of my colleagues in the astronaut office who were from the Marines that they used to tell me, hey, Ellen, there's two things, accomplish the mission and take care of your people. Now, clearly when I was an astronaut and I was assigned to a flight, it was very, very clear. <laughs> you know, there were um, priorities for that flight, objectives, and, you know, my job was to make sure they got done. When you're director of an entire center that does a whole variety of things, you know, it gets a little more diffuse and sometimes it's a little harder to say, well, what is it that I specifically am doing? But at that level, you realize, okay, the mission isn't just the programs that we are assigned to today and the skills we need to carry them out. It's thinking about what may be coming 10 years down the road and making sure that we're prepared. You know, are we bringing in people with skills today that we're gonna to need 10 years from now, or are we sort of basing it on the past? Are we 
looking at our facilities? Are we encouraging people to bring in new ideas? Are we forming new partnerships, using new technology, um, upgrade, you know, changing our processes and procedures? You know, I would tell my folks, if there's any process um, that we do today that we're doing the same way from five years from now, we're not going to retain our leadership role. Other people will absolutely pass us by. So, you know, just defining your purpose and priorities and, and of course, that focus on the people. Yeah, mission, people, and, you know, that innovative lens as you're evolving, right, to continually question yes. and change. And, yeah. and yet uh, you also have had to lead during crisis. And I, I hate to take you back to this time, but you were in the Johnson Space Center uh, when the Columbia disaster happened. The Space Shuttle Columbia explodes in the skies January over 1st, Texas 2003, today. Space Shuttle Columbia was, was returning home from its 28th mission when disaster struck. All seven crew members on board Columbia. were killed. Well, there's going to be a, a period of uh, mourning in this community. And you had to be hurting personally uh, yourself. How did you uh, lead uh, as a moral leader during those crises times? Well, it, you know, kind of comes back to those two things, accomplish the mission and take care of your people. And I would say the mission at that point was two things. One, we still had people in space on the space station. And it was clear we were not going to be able to fly the shuttle for some period of time. We didn't actually even know if we were ever going to fly it again. We had to make sure we were taking care of those people and thinking about how we continued to operate the space station I think one of the hardest things about responding to all of that was when the accident investigation report came out. And one of the things they faulted was really the organizational culture. And um, they talked about, uh, we relied too much on past success rather than sound engineering practices. That there were some organizational barriers which prevented effective communication of critical you know, safety information even during the mission and maybe a, an informal chain of command where some of the decisions were sort of made outside of um, you know, the processes that we would normally have. And it was hard because NASA kind of prided itself on do, doing those things well. And everybody had to realize, uh, you know, we had not done them well and that we had some changes that we had to make. Yeah, you're bringing together really the, the technical piece of it and the, the human piece of it so beautifully. And, you know, you have three patents, uh, at least, <laughs> and patents don't just happen. So there's a lot of science and iterative uh, trial and error and, and failure and, and rebuilding. As you think about that scientific process of coming to have three patents and moral leadership, what are the things that translate uh, from that work to leading uh, as a moral leader? Well, I think one of the most um, important is just being open-minded, right? <laughs> you follow the data, you look to others and their ideas when, you know, as you are doing your own research or trying to come up with your own new ideas and you're learning from your own experience. I think redefining failure, again, is important. Certainly in the um, research and development sense, it's an expected part of the process. <laughs> you, know, you, you didn't get the results you expected. Well, well, what does that mean? Does that mean your hypothesis is incorrect? Does that mean maybe 
Um, the experiment that you design needs to be designed a little bit differently. You know, it's really only failure if you sort of ignore the facts or don't follow up with exploring other causes for, you know, the results that you're getting. I think it, it always gets back to being open-minded as well as integrity with, with the data. Yeah, I, I want to come back to that. I said, wow, earlier, because there's, there's such a challenge, isn't there, with right now uh, the eroding trust in science, actually yeah. trust in, in organizations and leadership. And so I guess I wonder in that, in that process, how do we rebuild uh, trust in science, in facts, in each other? You know, it, it seems like this is sort of the perfect time to do that because it's only through science research that has happened over many, many years that we're developing a vaccine that's going to allow us to, um, to get through this pandemic. And if you look at other issues, um, extreme weather, uh, again, what we know, how we model it, that all comes through science. I think to reach people who are really genuinely, genuinely confused about some of the contradictory information that they see from a variety of sources, it's important to have a source of peer-reviewed information that they can trust. And I know, you know, as we think about COVID-19 and the pandemic, there were a lot of headlines that came out. Um, and some of them were about studies um, that um, were preliminary, maybe had not yet been peer reviewed, you know, weren't the kind of um, double blind studies that are really the gold standard for medical research. And it was understandable. People were trying to learn as much as possible, as quickly as possible. And, and I think those details were available if you actually read the article where we'd say, hey, this is preliminary, or we just aggregated data and there wasn't a control. But those details get lost in the headlines, <laughs> you know, and so people would see contradictory things and just kind of throw up their hands and say, oh, well, the scientists don't know what they're talking about. Whereas to me, it was a perfect example of how science is actually carried out you know, where people are trying to ask questions, determine the best way to get answers. Um, and I'm, I'm guessing the scientific uh, approach and looking back even at Columbia, right? Absolutely. The lessons learned there. Yes, absolutely. It, it's exactly the same thing. It, it was really seeing science and engineering research as it happens, which is, is exactly how it goes forward. It's not a perfectly straight line, right? It, takes a little bit of twist and turns, but really through the process of continued study, peer review, you get to understand, you know, really what the facts are. Did you know that 86% of employees believe there is an urgent need for moral leadership in the workplace? And 77% of employees believe that moral leadership can be learned. The Howe Institute is proud to offer the NextGen Fellowship for Moral Leadership, designed to help emerging leaders also be moral leaders. Learn how your organization can join the fellowship by visiting our website, thehowinstitute.org. You've got some uh, real experience in trying to communicate across differences and innovate across differences and, and team together, right, across differences. What are some of the sticky situations that you were able to work through with communications, teamwork, and innovation? 
I was fortunate enough that on my flights, we didn't have any sort of emergencies, right, that we really had to, to work together. Lots of small little things that went wrong and, and, you know, the folks in mission control were well able to help us with that. I did gain a really good perspective after my first couple of flights. Uh, one of the jobs I had in the office was to work in mission control in the position that we call CAPCOM, which is the person who actually talks to astronauts on orbit. And, uh, you know, I actually became a much better astronaut, I think, after that, you know, on my third and fourth flights, because I had a much better idea of how mission control worked, you know, sort of what they had insight into, what they didn't, what they were probably thinking when they asked something, you know, so again, communication is really always key. I think it was shortly after I became maybe deputy center director that we did have an issue on a shuttle flight. So this was part of the assembly of the space station. They were rolling up one of the solar arrays and moving it to another location because we were adding to the station and then unfurling it. And it turned out it had gotten caught on something and there was a big rip in the solar array, which was going to be a huge problem for, you know, supplying power to the station as we move forward. It was a little bit of an Apollo 13 moment. It, it wasn't saving the lives of these crew members, but it was really trying to save the life of the space station in a way. And, you know, they looked at what tools they had on board, came up with an idea to kind of stitch it, almost like sewing it, but only with very large pieces of equipment. And, you know, it was just a great example of innovation and teamwork and communications. And it worked to this day, um, that solar array is still working. Well, that's uh, uh, leaving a legacy and an impact and an influence. <laughs> Excellent example. Thank you. Uh, so big question. What is the greatest threat, do you think, to our planet right now? Is it global warming? Is it the pandemic? Is it lack of trust in science or lack of moral courage? I mean, what's the greatest threat to our planet from your perspective? Well, in one word, um, humans. <laughs> And, you know, the way I think about it is it's not actually a threat to our planet. It's a threat to ourselves. You know, our planet was here billions of years before humans. I have no doubt it will be here billions of years <laughs> into the future. The planet's going to survive. It's the humans that aren't going to survive if we don't really pay attention to what is happening on our planet and figure out a way to work together. So I don't know, does it help people to think of it more selfishly that, it, you know, it's really ourselves that we're trying to save and our infrastructure? You know, we have you know, brilliant people who've come up with ways to monitor our planet, to measure changes, use that data to build and improve models, become better at forecasting future changes. So there's no doubt in my mind, we also have the ingenuity to mitigate these changes, to adapt um, so it's, it's really more about the collective will and the urgency to do so. And I would say that also encompasses the other things that you mentioned, the trust in science and, and moral courage. That's, that's where it comes in. Hmm. It reminds me of, uh, you know, organizational surveys where the question, the greatest strengths or the greatest weakness and the greatest strength is the leadership. The greatest weakness is the leadership. Exactly. And so maybe, you know, the greatest threat is humanity, but the greatest, you know, hope is humanity. So with that, I guess I'd like to focus on a view that you have shared and it's from space, looking down at the earth and at the planet. 
and you said it's all one and it's all connected and you know to to see that must be uh, you know build humility of just how small we are but really how vast and connected we are I must say it's a little bit hard to keep my concentration because I'm looking out the aft windows at some great views of South America right now. How has that influenced you uh, in in having that experience and sharing that vision? Well, definitely the whole experience of being in space is humbling. And, And one thing that I was always very conscious of was that it was only because of thousands of other people that I had made it safely to space in the first place. And Clearly, I was counting on them as well for, for my own safe return. So it certainly made me respect the whole team. But at, you know, as you do have this amazing view of the Earth, you're orbiting every hour and a half, and you do see, see it as one connected system. Um, you, know, you can see the oceans and the continent. Um, a couple of my flights, we were studying the atmosphere, so very conscious of that. And you don't see it as these many, many different artificial divisions that humans feel so compelled to create. <laughs> and I think it's a wish that uh, astronauts have that more people could see it as this uh, whole one connected system. You can't really see the, um, the strife, you know, that you know is actually happening on Earth. And we should be able to take care of each other and the planet. And you definitely have that thought when you're looking down on Earth from space. That's fascinating. Well, our our founder and chairman, uh, Dove Seidman, has the book, How, and we have a moral leadership report, which I know you've reviewed. And and two of the practices are both um, practicing and demonstrating humility and also seeing the humanity in everyone. And I'm kind of curious if you would talk a little bit about, you know, it's this one, like we're all interconnected and that's very humbling. But then how do you go from that place to actually distinctively seeing the humanity in each person? I I think part of it is just realizing that every person that is working in this great endeavor that I got to be part of human spaceflight is helping to make it happen. It didn't really matter what the position was. You know, I I used to joke that the government procurement regulations were much harder than rocket science. And, you know, that we depended on people who knew those um, extremely well and could get uh, procure the goods and services that we needed to do our job. So, um, you know, one of the things that I did when I was director at Johnson Space Center is I was talking to some employees at one time, and one of them who had been there 20, 25 years said, well, she'd never been in mission control. You know, she worked in, I forget what it was, it, you know, might have been human resources, you know, sort of one of the mission enabling areas. And I just, I just remember thinking, it is so sad that there is anybody who works at Johnson Space Center that hasn't been in mission control. And it was clear there was a lot of people. So one of the things we instituted was just the ability for supervisors to uh, arrange tours, whether it was you know, mission control or some of our other astronaut training facilities or out at our aircraft ops division. Um, so that they could feel more a part of the mission. They might work, you know, in a cubicle all day, um, but they were, they were making all of this happen. Um, a lot of the talk is about colonizing Mars, and I'm just wondering what your thought is, is will that happen? When will that happen? And are you going to volunteer to be a pioneer? <laughs> well, I always tell people, um, 
we'll travel to Mars when we decide to do it. <laughs> you know, sure, there's, there's big and interesting technical and operational challenges, but I don't see there's anything there that's insurmountable. So again, it's really sort of more about collective will. And uh, I guess one of the things that I will have going for me, especially more and more as the years go by, is that um, there will be less risk to me from the radiation environment because the older you are, the less impact it has on your total lifespan, which is how they measure risk from it. So uh, believe me, when John Glenn went back into space at age 77, like every current and former astronaut thought, that could be me someday. <laughs> well, we hope that that is a thought that you uh, keep entertaining. And we know that your innovation, your trailblazing, your curiosity, and you're embracing that, uh, you know, focus on the mission and always focus on the people and the people will take care of the mission is clearly who you are and how you are as a moral leader. Ellen, I just want to say thank you so much for sharing your time and, and your uh, wisdom with us about this moral leadership journey. Uh, you do inspire. And uh, I'm just so grateful for you. Thank you so very, very much. Thank you. I really enjoyed it. I will be thinking of my conversation with Ellen Ochoa for a long while. Thank you for listening. And thank you to our mission partners, Levi Strauss and Company, MasterCard and the Ford Foundation for their support. If you enjoyed this conversation, please consider subscribing, rating, and reviewing and sharing. It's going to mean a lot and it helps us get other ears on our podcast. Please join us again next time. The Howe Institute for Society seeks to build and nurture a culture of moral leadership, principled decision-making, and values-based behavior to elevate humanity. To learn more about our work, please visit our website, thehowinstitute.org, and follow us on LinkedIn and Twitter at The Howe Institute.